Hello, everyone, and welcome to Lockdown Law. My name is Ian, I'm your host, and I'm joined today by Thaddeus Hoffmeister. Thaddeus is a veteran, a judge, an author, a law professor, a mayor, and a father. Thaddeus, thank you for joining me today. Ian, nice to be back. So they can say a lot about you. One thing is you're not lazy, huh? I try not to be. It's an impressive resume. Thank you. Thank you very much. And uh, you were you're admitted to practice in four different states. I am. Yes, including your great state. The goal is a golden state. I think that's is that the motto for California. That's right. Golden yep. state. Yes. So did you have to take four different bar exams? No, I did have to take California though, and California, as you know, is a beast. So I took California. Uh, I waved into Ohio and I waved into DC. And so I took to uh, Indiana and California. Nice. Yeah, back in my day, it was a three day test. Yeah. Now it's only uh, two days, apparently. Oh, they're getting soft? Is that I what you're doing? <laughs> exactly. I just like saying that, you know, back in my day. Of course, of course. Yeah, no, no. I mean, the, the California bar is well known as being a, uh, a tough hurdle. Yeah. For incoming lawyers. What branch did you serve in? Oh, I'm still in the military. I'm uh, in the uh, National Guard. I was, I've been on the active duty Army, and I've also been in the Re- Army Reserves. And now I'm in the Army National Guard. Cool. My dad is a Vietnam veteran. He was okay. in the Marine Corps. He served from 68 to 70, 1968 to 70. I think he was a field radio operator. He has a bad joke about the Navy. He says they park aggressively offshore and send in the Marines. I like it. I haven't heard that one. I've heard many jokes. I haven't heard that one. But yeah, no, he served uh, during some challenging times. Yeah, he did. Yeah, I don't know what it is about the Marines. They, they do like to boast. Um, I think the last verse of the Marine hymn is something like, if the Army and the Navy ever look on heaven's scenes, they will find the streets are guarded by United States Marines. Yeah, no, Dave, there's a lot of pride and, and deservedly so for those in the Marine Corps. Yeah. So uh, you're, you're a professor out in Dayton, Ohio? Cor- correct, yes. Um, I'm, I teach uh, criminal law, and I also teach uh, courses related to uh, law and technology. Wow, social media law, that's a hot topic nowadays. It is, yeah, so there's a lot going on there, and I find that very interesting. It's, it's constantly evolving. And so, you know, you're, you're teaching a case that you think is solid ground today. And then by the end of the semester, you'll, you'll find out the Court of Appeals has overturned it. So that, it keeps you on your toes. Yeah. And I think the, the problem with that is there's really no good answers. You know, there's definitely a lot of censorship right now with social media, but they're not subject to the First Amendment, right? The First Amendment only protects against government censorship. So they have their own, I guess, First Amendment rights and freedom of association rights. So it's a real quagmire. It is. And, it's, and, it, and it starts off by the first challenge is how do you, how do you define social media? What is all included in social media? But you're, you're exactly right. And so some people have, you know, uh, many people have misconceptions about the First Amendment and what it applies to and what it covers. But you, what you said is exactly right. And, and that's one of the challenges is, is, is how are you going to restrict or impose on someone, a private entity, what they can and cannot put on their uh, platform. And the challenge is, you know, then you try to try to analogize 
uh, social media with, you know, the telephone? Is it more like television? Is it more like a publisher of a newspaper? So what exactly is social media? And there's a, and there's a, there's some def definite, um, uh, point uh, issues that they have not really resolved yet, which to me makes it interesting. You know, it, it's, it's not, um, well settled, well settled law right now. So it's, it's wide open. Uh, and I think you're gonna, I think I've been saying this for a couple of years now, and I think it's actually going to come to fruition. You are going to see some form of regulation. You know, it's, it's still kind of the wild, wild west on social media, but I think you're going to see, uh, either they're gonna self-regulate or the government's gonna come in and impose some type of regulation uh, on the platforms. Yeah, and one thing that's been surprising to me is I would have thought the free market would have stepped in and, and kind of fixed the problems that Twitter and Facebook have and maybe there be some other platform that's um, more like wild, wild west open and, and doesn't censor anything, but that really hasn't happened. No, you're right. Um, and you think it would resolve itself. And that's kind of uh, what the early ideas was, is that it would it would self-correct. The challenge is, I think part of it is that you've had some pretty dominant platforms there that for, obviously the first one that comes to my mind is Facebook. And they would say, and so so without really direct competition, it, it really is, is its own animal and, and doesn't really have to be too responsive. But if you had some more competition, you know, like, like car, the car industry, where you have some direct competitors with each other. And so they can balance off. But when you have some just 700 pound elephants in the room that don't have any direct competition, it's, it's really, I think it's more difficult for the market forces to speak. And then, you know, it's, it's interesting what's driving uh, some of the, you know, I don't think they could foresee all these different platforms like OnlyFans, TikTok, Twitter, there's so many different ones that it's, it's a, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a different world out there. It really is. And it's hard, to, um, it's hard to put your arms around all of it. But I think at some point, you're going to see some, some regulation by, this, by the states. And they, they've already tried. You see, Florida and Texas have already tried to impose regulations. I don't, I, well, so far, they have not been found constitutional. I don't think they will just because the way they drafted them. And you have to find people who are truly neutral. <laughs> a lot of times, much of the, the legislation that is proposed is very partisan. You know, either the liberal conservative side is pushing something as opposed to trying to find a, a neutral sort of law or, or, or a bill that, that can be palatable to, to both sides and more folks as opposed to just trying to push a certain agenda across. Yeah, and maybe that is one way the government can get involved is they do have the power to break up monopolies, right? So could they potentially break up Facebook into three or four different companies? They could, and they are looking at that and uh, they're investigating whether or not they should, uh, some of the, you know, Facebook has, has a history of uh, either, replicating their either replicating their competition or buying out their competition. So it's hard to compete with Facebook. And so you can, you can spin off some of their arms and, and they are looking at that uh, right now. But again, their initial challenge to uh, classify Facebook as a, as, a, as a monopoly has been uh, somewhat uh, undercut by the courts because they're saying, define the marketplace that Facebook is in and they have a difficult time doing that. And the hmm. government has a difficult time doing that. So that's, that's just one challenge to bring this antitrust. And antitrust, I will say, it's, it's, it's a long-term long uh, game. It's a, it's, a, it's a war, not a battle. And it takes, a, it's a, it's a, it takes years, I think, sometimes. And by the time when it's ever resolved, 
Microsoft would be an example in the 90s. By the time it's resolved, most folks have just, the, the industry itself, the technology has moved on. Yeah, and you know, the Biden administration made a really troubling comment a couple of weeks ago. I think it was the, I forget who it was. Somebody in the administration said that if you're banned off one platform, you should get banned on all of them. And I don't know why they would say something like that. And to me, that's kind of like, okay, maybe there's a little state action there, some coercion by the government on, on these uh, social media companies. Did you catch no, it's that? Interesting that? It's interesting that you say that because, I mean, one argument that, they, that, that has been proposed is that these platforms need to self-regulate, you know, sort of like uh, the motion picture industry when they said, hey, if you don't do something with these movies, this is way back in the day, uh, we're going we're gonna to start regulating. The, go the government's going to determine what's a good movie, what's a, uh, what's a, a violent movie, what, all that. And so the industry regulated itself. They came up with the ratings, G, PG-13, all that stuff. But that's them all getting on the same sheet of music. And so you may see that in the social media arena. You may see the platforms do that. Now, but to your point, I think then you may run some challenges with anti, depending on how it's done, you could raise some other arguments in that you're shutting people out. I mean, that if you were to ban someone from this form of speech and they didn't have any alternative methods of communication, well, that's going to raise a whole nother can of worms. So that's something you have to look out for. But I, I do see that self-regulation, meaning they all work together to determine what's good content, what's unhealthy content, what can get you banned and having rules that, that everyone can see and, and assess, that may be one way to, to, to prevent one type of regulation, meaning content moderation, but then it may invoke other types of regulation. So they are in a very, I would say, difficult spot. Yeah, fascinating. Tell me again about your involvement in the Barry Bonds case. Oh, so yeah. So uh, as some of you may know that um, the home run leader, Barry Bonds, uh, was accused of um, with uh, being less than forthright with the federal government when they had the whole Balco investigation, the use of steroids. And so he was under investigation and he was being talked to by the government for his alleged uh, use of steroids. And he made some statements to uh, investigators. And those statements, the, the uh, government claimed were less than truthful and obstructing justice. And the United States government spent millions of dollars to prosecute Barry Bonds. And, the only pr and, and they knew he wasn't going to go to jail. They basically, the judge said, we're not, we're not, we're not gonna incarcerate on this offense. And the one who went to jail was his trainer who would not testify against Barry Bonds. And I, I don't know, he spent a significant amount of time in jail, held in contempt, because he, he wouldn't testify against Barry Bonds. So he's the only guy who ends up going to jail here. And they convict Barry Bonds at the, the district court level. And then he was, the Ninth Circuit overturned it. So he, he the, the, the conviction was, um, so he doesn't have a conviction, he's not guilty. And the government spent millions of dollars going after Barry Bonds for something that they couldn't convict on. And, uh, and so what I did um, was help the defense team with jury instructions. Because even today, the challenge you have, and this goes back to your earlier question or statement, is that you know, the impact of social media 
So as you can imagine, someone like Barry Bonds has a significant digital footprint online, and you can find a lot of stuff, especially things about HGH and human growth and steroids. Whether that stuff is true or not true, there's a lot of stuff out there about him. And so what I did is I uh, drafted the jury uh, instructions uh, for the jurors with respect to using social media and following the court's instructions. And at the time, it was fairly cutting edge because they really hadn't changed their instructions. Many jurisdictions now have changed their instructions to help alleviate this problem. It's, it's not totally resolved because they're just instructions and people want to violate them. Guess what? They'll violate them. But so that was my job mainly because I had done a lot of work uh, on uh, a lot of work and research on jurors' use of social media. And so I crafted these instructions that the defense wanted because they were the ones most concerned. They didn't want people to go online and look up things uh, about Barry Bonds. That's interesting. And you're a baseball fan. I like the the picture in your backdrop. Is that Jackie Robinson? It is Jackie Robinson. Yes, it is. He's stealing home. Yeah, that's a good eye. Yeah. That's a good eye. So are you, uh, are you a Reds fan or what's your team? Having uh, grown up uh, in San Diego, uh, I am a fan of the Padres. Oh, I'm sorry. That's, I know. That's tough. <laughs> I know. It is tough. It is tough. But I also like the, I like the Reds as well. Since I'm, I live in Cincinnati now, so I do like the Reds. Yeah. Padres have a beautiful park, though. I, I don't they think do. it gets much better than that. And uh, I'm a Giants fan, and we always travel well down there. And with yeah. Giants and Padres, it's hard to tell who, who's got the home field advantage there. Yeah, people want to go down there, especially in the early part of the season when it's still a little cool. They like to go down, and uh, it's always going to be 70 in San Diego. So I have a question for you about juries. Um, One thing that troubles me is the jury selection process. I feel like there's a lot of gamesmanship there. Why isn't it just random? Why isn't it, you know, either a six-person jury or a 12-person jury? Um, you just get 12 random people in your community. Maybe the judge screens for conflicts of interest or something like that. But that seems like a more fair and just system. How did we get into this jury selection process? You know, because we borrowed from the British. And the British had allowed, the, the big, I think, maybe the concern, maybe, maybe I, I, if I'm correct, is that peremptory challenges where you can just randomly strike people uh, because you feel like it, but you can't do it based on race, gender, or in the Ninth Circuit and some other places, sexual orientation. So they like this idea of peremptory challenges. Interesting, the British have long ago abandoned peremptory challenges. Hmm. They, they said, we don't do peremptory challenges anymore. Interesting, Arizona, my last, my understanding, Arizona has now gotten rid of peremptory challenges. And, and I think more places are going to get rid of them because of the way they're used. But yes, some people say, just take the first six, take the first 12 up and go with that. The, I guess the counter argument would be is, you're going to find there's going to be some rogue people up there. And then if you don't ask some questions to them, if you don't ask questions, then, then they're going to be on the jury and they're going to, and they're going to, they're going to, they're going to, they're going to really drive or prevent justice. However you define justice. And it's going to, it's going to turn people off both the parties and the, the, and the public on our jury system. And people are going to lose faith in it. If they see these kind of uh, just, hard to want illogical verdicts. So they, that's going to bother them. And so they want to ask some questions. Now, I guess the, the, the one argument could be, okay, that's fine. You can ask some questions, but only use challenge for cause. Meaning that you, you only strike them because you believe they cannot be impartial. And, and many people are fine with that. Uh, they might say, well, you're really going to then, people are going to want to ask a thousand and one questions if they don't have, if they don't have peremptories. 
I, I think that's fine. And we're going to see what, what, what goes on in Arizona. It's working in England. I, I, we'll see how Arizona turns out. But I think it's fine to eliminate peremptory challenges. Now, there's a whole cottage industry of jury consultants who will probably disagree with me and give you a thousand and one reasons why you need peremptory challenges. I, I'm not going to deny that. But I do think overall, the peremptory challenge probably does more harm than good. And I think people are bothered that they have this ability just to strike someone. Uh, for whatever reason, because, you know, as attorneys, we know when when I go in the courtroom, I'm not looking for impartial people. I don't want an impartial person. I want someone who's favorable to my client. That's the person I want. The judge may want impartial people. That's fine with him or her. But me, I want someone for my client. So whoever I think is going to be best for my client, I'm going to save those. Persons. But if I think you're not going to be favorable, even if you're the most impartial person in the world, I want that. Give me 12 people who favor my client. I'll take them any day, all day. And so I think maybe peremptory challenges, maybe we need to follow England's direction and get rid of them because they, they, they may go do, cause more harm than good because then they allow people to strike someone based, usually sometimes it's based on physical characteristic traits. Uh, a woman thinks this way, a man thinks this way, African-American thinks this way, Caucasian thinks this way. So, because you don't have enough information, you're going to strike someone because of, because of the physical characteristic, physical characteristic trait, which definitely turns people off from our legal system, and they lose faith in our legal system. So, I agree with you. Uh, I think that maybe we should definitely, at a minimum, get rid of peremptory challenges. Some people say, let's just take the first six, the first twelve. Let's not ask some questions. Let's just go from there and see what we got. In, in your experience in the criminal justice system, one thing that really fascinates me too is um, that a defendant has a right to a, a trial by judge instead of a jury trial. And I always wonder why criminal defendants don't exercise that right more often. Have you ever seen that? Well, it's interesting you say that. I, I, would, I don't know if I'd go necessarily as a right. You have a, you have a constitutional right to a jury but you don't have a constitutional right to a judge. And in that's for the federal system, you need permission. Uh, here in Ohio, depending on your, your jurisdiction in Ohio, you do have a right to a judge. You do have a right, so depend on your state. But in the United States Constitution, you only have a right to a jury. And so um, you, every now and then, here in this state, we have people come in and say, hey, the prosecutors generally, they wanna say, well, let's take this right away. Let's just say, hey, you don't have a right Basically, on the federal system, you actually have to ask permission if you want to go judge alone. Hmm. Uh, you don't have a right to that. You have to ask permission. They can deny that. Uh, now, then the question becomes, why would they ever do that? <laughs> you know, why, why, would you, why would you not want to go judge if you're a prosecutor? And so I think you'd want to force somebody to go to a jury if the person, if the person just maybe fit a stereotype of a, of a, of an, of a, of a criminal that just came to, I don't know how, you know, whatever comes in your mind. For example, let, let's say someone's being charged with uh, a, a crime against a child. And, and for some reason, whatever you view of a pedophile, this guy actually looks exactly like that. And, and, and you would think that someone with legal training and someone who's on the bench could look past someone's physical characteristics and say, Hey, you get a clean slate no matter how, how you look. Who cares if you mumble under your breath? You can't make eye contact. You look disheveled. I'm still going to take you at face value without they prove the case. As opposed to a jury made up of lay people, 
that may turn them off and they may be bothered by this person's appearance and that may influence their decision making. And so someone might say, a defense attorney say, hey, I, I don't want my guy or gal going in front of this jury because he just doesn't present well. He doesn't right. present well. And so I want to go with the judge and or my guy has priors and he has to testify. And some people, I, I do think people overestimate how much people are bothered by priors, but it does, it can influence people. Your priors can influence people. So the judge is more willing to accept hey, your client's been arrested nine times for solicitation, but yet this 10th time, the government dropped the ball on something and we're going to win this, this case based on the law. They're more willing to accept that. The jury may not be as willing to, willing to accept that. So maybe that's an argument. But um, also too, here in Ohio, they charge you for the jury. So yeah, so that's, yeah, there's costs associated with that. I mean, it's not, it's not exorbitant, but my clients are all indigent. So this is all just starts, this is more fees they got to pay for jury and um, takes longer. Obviously the jury trial, it's, it's, it's not gonna be, you can't get it done as quickly. So those are the reasons. And, uh, and there's, there's a jury, there's a, uh, a, a trial tax and a jury tax, a tax as well. And, and, and so there's not written down anywhere. No one's gonna say this to you. No one's gonna tell you this, that there's a trial tax or a jury tax. But everywhere I've been, if you go to trial, and or you request a jury, they're gonna you 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 increase the likelihood that they're gonna they're gonna the penalties are gonna be higher for your client. Interesting. So, do you ever see people exercise that right and have a trial by judge? Does that happen? Oh, all the time. Oh, all really? Time. Okay. Oh yeah, yeah, all the time. They do all the time because they um, they want it done quickly too. They want it done quickly, uh, especially if you see if it's a low level uh, criminal offense. If it's a, see, it's a low level felony or if it's a misdemeanor, oh yeah, they'll do judge. They'll do judge. Interesting. Yeah. I think if I uh, knock on wood ever end up in that situation, I might roll the dice with the judge over a jury. I don't know why. It just, <laughs> it seems like maybe they're, they're more impartial and they can get to the truth better, but given their experience, but. Yeah, it's, it's really fact to me, fact driven. And uh, I mean, I mean, I guess just, I mean, Based on the numbers, you just got a better chance with you only got to convince one person on the uh, on the jury and you can you can hang it. So, I mean, that's so there's always a numbers game to look at. It's like I got to just get one person on this jury to, to, to be on my side. So I think you're you're more favorable there. And, and the judge could always overrule the jury and say there's not enough. There's not enough facts here to go forward. Oh, they could make that ruling. The, the judge could do that. They rarely ever do. I've never seen it, but they could do that. And so um, it's sort of a. You just feel the numbers are on your side with 12 people as opposed to one. That makes sense. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's talk about um, these three interesting cases, the Ahmed Arbery case, mm -hmm. the Kyle Rittenhouse case, and then uh, this case out of Michigan involving um, James and Jennifer Crumbly, whose son is accused of killing four students at Oxford High School, which is a suburb of Detroit. Um, you want to start with the Ahmed Arbery case and just give us sure. a basic overview of it? Yeah. So in the Armory Arbery, but the thing that's interesting about Rittenhouse and Ahmed Arbery, they both um, uh, take a look at how self-defense uh, plays out. And so just, I just basically just talk about self-defense quickly. All right. So self-defense. All right. It, it varies a little through, all jurisdictions have a little different nuance about self-defense. It's not exactly, they can change a little bit, but, but the general rule is self-defense is 
first thing with self-defense is you look at lethal versus non-lethal force. All right. So here we have we have we have people who died. So that means a lethal force was being used here, lethal force. All right. So if you want to use lethal force against someone else and claim self-defense, you have to be in fear of serious physical harm and or death. I'm sorry, and it has to be eminent. Has to be eminent. All right. And generally speaking, you can't be at fault. All right. Generally speaking, you can't be at fault. Now, then there's this debate in certain in certain states whether you have a duty to retreat or you don't have a duty to retreat. That varies. That varies by jurisdiction. But as a, but but generally speaking, you have to be in serious um, fear, serious physical harm or death before you use lethal force. All right. As opposed to non-lethal force. You just you don't have to have those two. You just have to it's some type of harm, all right? And so uh, both of these cases are going to involve that. And now in Arbery, uh, these three individuals, they thought one was a one was a, 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 a the McMichaels, I believe, or father and son. And there's a Mr. Bryant was involved as as well. They they um, believe that Armand Arbery is involved in and um, there's a, a house being constructed, and so they believe that he is involved somehow. They believe there's burglaries. Now, uh, according to the person who owned the house, the house had not been burglarized, but they believe for whatever reason, this guy was involved in burglaries. Mr. Arbery was involved in burglaries. And so uh, there've been some reports of, a, of an African-American male. Nowadays, everyone has the smart, uh, has the um, smart cam, what do you call the, the Zoom? Is it not the Zoom? What's the, what's the, the ring, ring, the ring doorbell. Yeah. 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 The ring right. doorbells right. on the house. So everything's being recorded nowadays. Right. So they believe that this is the guy uh, who's been in this house. But again, they have no proof that this house has actually been burglarized. There had been a theft out of someone's car, but again, that's theft out of a car and burglaring someone's house, two different things here. And so basically, Armand Arbery has been on the premises, I believe, has been there, but didn't didn't steal anything. So he's he's going down the street jogging, and they basically uh, believe believe that he's involved in some burglary. So they basically uh, stalk him and and corner him and engage him with weapons drawn, and he's fearful of his life, Mr. Arbery is, and then they, um, he ends up, one of them ends up shooting Mr. Arbery, and, and obviously then no one's trying to render aid, the police show up, the police take some statements from folks, but no one is arrested, no one is arrested, and, and, and there's some Local, there's some connection between one of uh, one of the individuals involved and the local DA and uh, um, law enforcement, and there's a long stretch of period where folks, where these folks are never taken into custody, and this case transfers from jurisdiction to jurisdiction, and I forget where it finally winds up, but I think it's somewhere near Atlanta, or if not in Atlanta, and they finally decide to take these folks into custody and to prosecute. They're shortly indicted. Now, the side note is that one of the guys who was involved in this, I don't know if it's Mr. Bryan or not, but one of them actually had a video recorded what was going on. He turned this video over and it was because of this release of this video that really got people interested. Well, I'm not saying that it got the public became aware of what actually happened because it's similar to what you saw with George Floyd, the statements that people made did not necessarily reflect the video that was shown. And so once this video was circ- and was by one of the defendants who released it, uh, 
that happened. And so, and then they, then once that occurred, the dominoes started falling. And so they were prosecuted. Uh, they were taken into custody. They were prosecuted for, um, I believe, malice murder, felony murder, uh, uh, false imprisonment uh, on those charges. And, uh, you know, go back to what we talked about earlier. Uh, and we talked about jury selection. So, so people were concerned because this, this case is after, because we, we did it, uh, Rittenhouse had already, Kyle Rittenhouse, the 17-year-old shooter in Kenosha, Wisconsin, he, he was acquitted. Uh, there, these cases were going at the same time, and he was acquitted, and this case was ongoing, so people were concerned that, okay, if he was acquitted, are these people going to be acquitted? And, and one of the reasons that people were bothered somewhat uh, about, the, there's a number of reasons, but I just focus quickly on the jury selection. So uh, this was done in a county that had a black population of 27%. Only one black person served as a jury. The defense struck 11 of 12 black jurors. All right, so they had 12 black jurors. Defense struck 11, okay? And so when I say struck, <clears throat> I'm, I'm assuming they're using the peremptory challenges for this. You can challenge for cause, but it says the defense, so I'm, I'm assuming they weren't exercising challenge for cause, they're exercising peremptory challenges. Now, what was said earlier, you cannot exercise a peremptory challenge, meaning I just, I just don't, I don't want this person jury because of someone's race, because of someone's gender, and where you are at in the Ninth Circuit because of someone's sexual orientation. Now, 11 of 12 would make you think that some of these jurors were struck because of their race. You'd have to go back and raise what they call a Batson challenge, all right? It's a, fam it's a famous Supreme Court case, Batson v. Kentucky, where the United States Supreme Court said in 1986, you can't strike someone because of their race. This was this was a this was a case by the prosecution in '86, but Batson and its progeny have said that it applies to civil cases, it applies to the prosecution, and it applies to the defense as well. So you can raise a, the, the prosecution could raise a Batson challenge, even though it's defense, and it doesn't matter if the uh, defendant is white, if the defendant is black, the defendant, that that does that doesn't matter what the race of the uh, of the defendant is. And so you can make a bat. So this is one of the criticisms that people have about our jury system is that people are doing, the, are exercising these strikes because of someone's race, all right? Not because of their views, not because of their job, not because of their international law enforcement, but strictly because of their race. So that's why some people say, hey, get rid of these peremptory challenges. So you're left with one black person, uh, three white men and 12 white women. Now that's 16. What they do is they keep alternates in case something happens. So you got to spend all this money and time on a jury and somebody gets sick or something happens or someone gets removed. You want to alternate to come in and replace that person because you don't want to start from scratch. You know, so that's why they have 16 people. That was the makeup of the jury. And so it uh, went to trial. Uh, some, depending on what view you took on this case, some people were worried if you were if you believe the people should be convicted that these folks would walk like how Rittenhouse, Rittenhouse did in Kenosha, Wisconsin. But no, uh, these folks were convicted. Uh, and they, you know, they raised this claim of self-defense. Remember, I, I talked about self-defense a little earlier. The challenge they're going to have with self-defense here is, is the facts. And, and self-defense is very fact-determinative. You, you're going to look at the facts here on whether or not you can, you're going to be successful. You know, serious physical harm you see, it's, it's hard to say that you're in serious physical harm. You fear this. You, I fear serious, imminent physical harm or death. 
when there's three of you, you are at least two are armed, you are in vehicles, and this other person is jogging. You see, that that's gonna be a stretch to say that you're in you fear serious physical harm because someone would say, Why are you following this person? Doesn't your vehicle have reverse? Can't you go backwards? Don't you have a phone that you can call? All these things that you can argue why you don't have, you're not, why you're not in fear of serious harm, okay? So that, that's the challenge they had to, to show why they were in serious physical harm. And so uh, they attempted to raise uh, self-defense because self-defense would have been a complete defense here. And, uh, and they were unsuccessful. As you can see, these, are, these would be hard facts regardless of anyone's race to prove self-defense acting in this manner. I think many people were bothered by the way that these folks were treated as opposed to some other people who, are, who have been um, uh, arrested by law enforcement immediately after something happens, uh, as opposed to here, it took them up to like 70 days, I believe it took them into custody. And so uh, that was an issue that the jury selection people, I think were bothered by the jury selection did not reflect the, the population of the county. Uh, but nonetheless, these folks, if you're, these folks were convicted, and I, I'm sure they'll be doing some type of appeal, but it's this idea that self-defense, especially when you're doing lethal force, you can take someone else's life, uh, you have to be very careful. Some people, many people believe that they have the right to do this at, at anything, but you, but you don't. You know, even here, they're trying to exercise. In Georgia, apparently in Georgia, you can do citizen's arrest if you have probable cause. <clears throat> I don't think they had probable cause here. I don't think you see someone uh, jogging uh, from a construction site gives you probable cause to believe that they burglarized uh, that construction site. So I, I think that was the challenge here. And I think that is what uh, is why they were unsuccessful. Mr. Arbery ran for five minutes away from these people. It's almost impossible to claim self-defense in that situation. Um, Greg McMichael, the father he used to work in some capacity. He was some sort of investigator with the um, prosecution's office. And so a lot of people are raising that as an issue. And um, that's, that's probably the reason they weren't charged within those 70 days, right? Some yeah. uh, nefarious activity there. Yeah. His son, I believe Travis McMichael was the one that shot and killed Mr. Arbery. The, the interesting, you know, I put the father son in a different category, you know, they definitely deserve what they got um, in terms of being convicted of murder. The, the neighbor, his story, it's hard to find facts about his story. And, and it's really interesting because um, he apparently was just sitting at home and saw his neighbors, Travis and Greg McMichael chasing Mr. Arbery. And he didn't really know what was going on. And he's the one that filmed it and turned it over. And he's facing, I think, the same sentence as the father's son under the um, felony murder rule, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, you know, I think his, his situation is a little bit more complex. I, I would agree with you. And I, and I think what's what's... I don't know how to, I don't know the right phrase for this, but it's almost like he didn't know he was doing something wrong. Like he turned over this evidence. Like he couldn't see, he couldn't see that this was, no, you can't almost, 
almost kind of like the uh, uh, Derek Chauvin. I'm not trying to be an apologist for him at all, but it's almost like he didn't understand that you can't put your knee on someone's neck like that. Like, it almost is like he doesn't get it. Like, he doesn't, like, you know, you're not tracking what you're doing. Like, this is, this is wrong. And it seems like this, um, the Brian guy didn't get that either because I, I just don't understand why he would turn this video unless it was going to get turned over anyways. I don't know. But, but hmm. he on his own turned it over. And I was like, this is what they need to convict. I mean, this is a uh, proverbial smoking gun. And uh, he, uh, he was involved and he helped us uh, with that, with against Arbery. So he's going to be, he's going to be uh, lumped in with the, with the uh, father and son. But yeah, I agree with you. It's his, his, his role is a little odd to understand, to quite wrap your mind around what he did. Yeah. And, you know, I think it's 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 one thing to give him a, a lengthy prison sentence for his actions. Um, I just really don't like the felony murder rule because it removes intent. And that's correct me if I'm wrong. That's the whole point of the criminal justice system is, you know, you get into the <coughs> mens rea, you know, um, whether or not you have a depraved heart versus a heat of passion, you know. And so the felony murder rule really removes intent from the equation, right? Yeah. So just I'll just recap the felony murder rule. So if people just aren't familiar with it, uh, I, I tell you, I didn't know this rule existed until I got to law school. So most states, not all, most I think most states have what they call this idea of felony murder rule. So depending on the crime and a common law or traditional law, uh, it was burglary, arson, rape, robbery, kidnapping, but it has been expanded to cover other crimes. So basically. The gist of the felony murder rule is if you engage in a crime, let's say you burgle a house, all right, and someone dies during this crime or even attempt of this crime, they're going to hold you liable for this death. And all they have to prove is that you had committed this crime or attempted to commit this crime, depending on how expansive it is. And so, for example, if it's a burglary, you attempt a burglary and the police show up and they accidentally shoot the homeowner, you are, the defendant is liable for the death of the homeowner, although they didn't even bring a gun to it. They had no intention of going in if that person was, was if their home was occupied. It doesn't matter under the felony murder rule is that while perpetrating a, 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 a specific felony, this would be an example of burglary, someone died because of that of uh, attempted uh, crime or crime itself, you are held liable for that death. And so many people, to include myself, have a problem with felony murder, especially when it's so far removed from uh, the, the death of someone. But yeah, that's how felony murder works. All they have to do is convict you of the felony. So they have to, the mens rea is only about the burglary. They don't have to prove the mens rea for the actual uh, killing of another human being. You know, this is so troublesome and, and I wish we would get rid of it because there is clearly a problem in this country. We incarcerate more people than any other country in the world, which is so alarming because China and India have one billion more people than us. <laughs> and I just read this story about this truck driver in Colorado who he got 100 years for a car accident, you know, and um, so... Very I would start, yeah, felony murder is one that really to look. And the problem we have, I think, is that we have these laws on the books 
that are kind of anachronistic. They, the, the time has passed. They're not really as um, relevant or as necessary as they might have been in the, uh, historically. But yet you have people who are very fearful of ever removing a criminal law. Now, they always want to add a new criminal law, but to remove one, they're very fearful of that. And what you're doing really is putting people's <clears throat> uh, lives in the hands of the local DA. And, and if you got someone there who's trying to make a name for himself or herself, or if you have someone who is just not worried about justice and is instead is, has different priorities, you run the risk that you can find yourself in the crosshairs of someone who's just looking, looking to score wins. All right. So all three of those men were convicted. And I don't know if they've, I, I think they're all serving, they're going to get a life sentence, right? Or has yeah, that... that's my understanding. Yes. And then yeah. they also are facing uh, federal charges in next year uh, based on hate crimes. Okay. A hate crime. Uh, so they'll, they'll also be prosecuted on the federal level. Okay. The Kyle Rittenhouse case, uh, walk me through that case. All right. Kyle Rittenhouse is a little, is different in that first, um, I think the big thing people, well, first of all, you have the age. I think age, age should be taken into consideration. Here you're talking about a 17-year-old uh, young man um, who, uh, tr- and I think the most prob- tr- troublesome, I think people have, problematic issue <laughs> is that you see someone go to the, and, and similar to what you had Armand Arbor, you had people, you had, you had, when people think of self-defense, they think of this idea, someone comes to them, you don't go to the problem. And so here, um, uh, here you have Kyle Rittenhouse who traveled to Kenosha, Wisconsin, because at the time they were ongoing unrest of, um, you had protesters out because they're unhappy with, with uh, a shooting, a local shooting that happened there and other parts of the country with respect to Black Lives Matter. And so uh, he wants to go there. He wants to go there, according to him, to protect property, to protect someone's property, as I, as I understand it. And while he's there, he engages he is confronted uh, with several people on who are, who are doing, who are protesting. And I can't say um, specifically, I don't know the facts as well to get into each one of the individuals that he confronts, um, but he confronts a number of people, a number of people confront him. And he is walking uh, around with a, a weapon, an AR, AR-15 style rifle, and he is engaged with several individuals. And ultimately, uh, he, I believe, <clears throat> kills uh, two, sh- shoots three, if I understand it, and, and kills two of them. And so <clears throat> he is uh, like similar similar to what happened to Armored Arbor. He's not immediately taken into custody. That's another thing that bothers people. Why aren't you taking these folks into custody? You see this person has told you, you know he has shot people. Why is the person taken into custody? And then ultimately he is charged uh, for the deaths, for the, for, the, for, the, for the shots that he fired, the deaths and then the injuries he's inflicted on people. And his claim, similar to what happened down in Georgia, is one of self-defense. He's going to claim self-defense. And, and people, again, the, the, the issues, one of the, 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 the concerns for those who, who were bothered by his acquittal, because Kyle Rittenhouse is acquitted of these charges, is that he went to Kenosha, Wisconsin. He's not from Kenosha, Wisconsin, but he went there and he knew the unrest was going on. Now, <clears throat> I don't think that necessarily takes away from your self-defense claim just because you go to some place, you know, similar to uh, I would think that if you had friends or family in another part of the country and that part of the country was under some kind of um, uh, some kind of uh, they had they had uh, individuals fighting there or they had uh, a riot or the demonstrations. I don't think that prevents you 
from going there, so long as the police didn't tell you can't come up here, we've restricted this area. But if, but if it's open to the public, I'm not sure that prevents you from going up there. Now you can disagree or agree whether or not someone should, should do that and or they should be armed, but it wasn't illegal for him to do that. It wasn't illegal for what, what he was doing. And so I think, um, but for some people that was an issue, but I, I, I don't, I, I think you're, you, you should be allowed, a person should be allowed to do that. Whether that's a good idea, that's a whole nother, another, another discussion. But with respect to the law, I think it's fine. And I think if you were actually uh, to get into the facts, and I don't know if you want to do that or not, but he had a pretty good, if, you know, again, the thing is you have to, it's hard, but you have to separate whether you agree with Black Lives Matter, whether you agree with people who should do, be counter protesters. You have to separate that. You have to separate and just look at the facts what actually happened to Mr. Rittenhouse? What, what was his engagement with other people? And, 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 and it was a sort of a, a um, he, I could see how you could find that he was, in, again, understand it's the, it's the government's burden to show these things. The government has to show these, has a position to, to show beyond proof beyond reasonable doubt that he was unjustified in taking these lies or to, of killing these people. And so, they have the burden, and if you look at the, some of the facts, as, as I as I remember them being told in, in the media, I do think he has an argument to be made that he was acting in self-defense. I mean, remove why he's there, whether you agree or disagree, remove whether or not your your views on, on gun safety, but the acts between him and those individuals, I could see how someone would feel that they're in serious physical. Yeah, well said. I mean, the, the common theme between these two cases is you don't try to take the law into your own hands. Um, and you, you cannot use lethal force to defend property. Right. And I yep. think people need right. to realize that, but yeah, you know, a crucial fact for, for Kyle Rittenhouse is he was only 17, you know, and I, I think there's mm -hmm. studies now that say your brain really isn't fully developed until you're 25. Right. Um, but it, it is, it blows my mind that it is legal in the state of Wisconsin to walk around with an AR-15. I mean, how <laughs> that doesn't make any sense to me. Um, yeah. You know, that would be really alarming if you're walking down the street and you see somebody with an AR-15. Um, and all three of these, uh, Joseph Rosenbaum, Anthony Huber, and Gage Grosskrauts, all three of their stories are, are a little different. Um, Joseph Rosenbaum was the first person killed by Rittenhouse. And um, he apparently reached for Kyle Rittenhouse's gun. And so Rittenhouse fired in self-defense. The other two, it gets, it gets um, a lot more complicated. And I really feel for them because they thought that Rittenhouse was an active shooter, according to them. Mm -hmm. And so... Huber hits him with uh, um, his skateboard and Rittenhouse kills him in self-defense. And then Gage Grosskrauts actually pulls out a gun on Rittenhouse and Rittenhouse shoots him in the biceps, wounds him, doesn't kill him. So just a horrible situation, horrible case. And again, common theme, stay home, call the police. Don't try to take the law into your own hands, right? No, 100%. And you can see, too, though, uh, there is also, a, and I said it's very fact-specific, a little difference in Rittenhouse in that folks engaged him. Now, granted, you see him in the video with that AR-15, but folks are engaging him 
as opposed to Armand Arbery, where those three defenders are engaging Armand Arbery. They're going after him. So, you know, that's, that's the kind of thing. It's one thing if Kyle Rittenhouse was running up on people and then saying, are you a counter-protesting? You do this. Now, they seem to be coming towards him. And see, that's, the, that's one of the major differences you're going to see, at least when I have seen successful arguments on lethal um, uh, self-defense with lethal force, is when the person comes to you, you don't go to the person. Now, again, Kyle Rittenhouse went up to Kenosha, but, once, but there's nothing illegal about that. There's nothing illegal what he did. And then those folks, then he went outside, and those folks came to him, as opposed to what happened down in Georgia, where they, are, they went to Armand Arbery. They went, and some would say the word instigated, that could be used, but they went to him. So I think that, to me, is the big difference and why you could see why Rittenhouse would be, uh, would be acquitted. Last case out of Michigan involving James and Jennifer Crumley. Tell me about it. Okay, so this is an this is very this 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 case. The, just so people, the the other two cases are are interesting. They made the news, but they won't wind up in. They most likely won't wind up in a case law book. Probably not in a criminal case law book. May Rittenhouse may, but probably not going to wind up in a case law. The Crumley case can, because it's, it's very interesting what they're trying to do here in Michigan. So what you have is a young 15-year-old uh, boy whose parents buy him a handgun for Christmas. They give it to him early. And they take him to target practice. Okay. Then one day, uh, well, he's at school. He's at school. And then the teacher finds that he's uh, uh, searching for on his phone searching for ammo. And then his, and then they tell the mom and said, hey, your son's searching for ammo. She don't respond to the school. She don't respond to the school. She texts her son and says, hey, it's okay to look for ammo, just don't get caught. I'm paraphrasing, but that's basically what she said to her son. And LOL, laugh out loud. But you know, that's what she said. And then the day of the shooting is the son, the, he's drawing pictures, gruesome pictures about people being shot something to the words, I can't stop myself, blood, this, that, and the other. And the, the teacher sees it and said, oh, you need to go talk to someone. They take him to talk to folks, the school uh, administrators, call the parents, parents show up, school administrators say, hey, your son did this, you should take him home, and you need to, he needs to get counseling in 48 hours. Schools, the, the teachers, the, the parents said, no, we're not taking him home. Return the kid to school, to return the kid back to class, goes to the bathroom, kills four kids with the weapon from the home. The weapon was not secured. The weapon was not secured. And so the prosecution says, we're charging the boy with the whatever the first degree murder is, and in, uh, in, in, uh, I think a terrorism charge as well, but definitely the first degree murder charges, uh, whatever the state of Michigan has. And now we're going to charge the parents. And it is rare to charge the parents for the actions of their children in criminal law. Civil law as well, but even more rare in criminal law because criminal law, personal to the individual because you run the risk of losing your liberty and the stigma that's associated with being convicted. And so it's rare that you do, you're charged with what they call vicarious liability, the actions of someone else. So it's rare that happens in criminal law. And if they do do it for a school shooting, it's usually like child abuse, it's uh, child neglect, it's failure to store storage storage of a weapon. Right, those are the kind of charges you get. You don't get involuntary manslaughter. 
What involuntary manslaughter really is, it's gross negligent homicide, meaning you were extremely negligent, you were reckless, and because of your recklessness, because of your gross negligence, someone died. For example, you, you're downtown and you're driving 90 miles per hour. You don't want to kill anybody, but you're driving 90 miles per hour downtown. That's reckless. That, it could almost be depraved heart, depending on how crowded it is downtown. But this kind of activity that's just extremely reckless, arguably drinking and driving, if you've been convicted before, it could be reckless. You could, be, you could, get, you could get reckless. You could get that. Um, so what they're saying is, and it's very interesting, the, the, I have not seen it. I've not seen this done before. They're saying that the fact that you, you parents bought this weapon, you knew your kid was looking for ammo. You knew about this picture that he drew that showed people being shot. And you left this weapon unsecured. That's reckless behavior. Because of your reckless behavior, these four kids died. We're holding you responsible. That is, that's different. That's precedent setting. And that may change the debate on gun safety. And may change the debate because it doesn't really, rarely ever happens. And is it legal in the state of Michigan for a 15-year-old to uh, own a weapon? Um, you can have the weapon. I think the parents have to own. I don't know if you, I don't know if you can own it, but you can possess it in in adult custody in, 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 with adults. Okay. But I don't know if you can own that. I don't know if it can be in your name. That I don't know. But you can have it around adults. You can't have it by yourself. Got it. And you don't have to. And there's no storage requirement for, against for juveniles in Michigan. Oh, interesting. Okay. So this case is pending, and we'll see how it turns out. Right. We will. And we'll see. And we'll see. Is this going to be a new way? See, to me, what this does, if this is successful, what then are you going to be able to start charging people with for the action? Like what like what what else can you charge adults with? Because really what this is, is doing is to me sort of a back end around gun safety legislation, because since they won't pass these laws in the state legislature, you get it done by prosecuting parents. See, so, so say, oh, okay, so there's no gun storage laws? Well, you're, you're, committing, you're, you're committing a crime now. You're in voluntary manslaughter. And so it's like, oh, but they didn't commit a crime, but their behavior is so negligent, it's grossly negligent. So that's another way I think you could go about regulating gun safety as opposed to doing it through Congress or doing it through your state legislature. Now you're doing it in the courthouse. So now what, because if this, if this takes hold, I mean, I see other prosecutors going to start. Other prosecutors will start doing this if, you know, if they can prove that link. I mean, some of this, in a way, you're like, <clears throat> how are the parents to know? I'm not saying this is going to be an easy conviction. I, th- I think it's going to be. I can see the parents walking. To be honest with you, I could see them walking because they're going to say, "How how did I know that my kid was going to shoot up the school? How did I know that? You know, he's had no history of disciplinary problems. He's had no prior mental health concerns." How did you know that this was going to happen? And so I think that, um, th- that again, the government has to prove this beyond, prove beyond reasonable doubt. I think that could be a challenge. I think that yeah. could be a serious challenge. Interesting case. Well, I could talk to you for hours, but, you know, you probably got more important things to do. Thank you so much, Thaddeus, for your time and expertise. I really appreciate it. Well, it's always funny, and you got great questions. <laughs>